vitamin C has evolved. Ultriant Vitamin C is a cutting-edge liposomal liquid food supplement designed for maximized absorption. Discover Ultriant Liposomal Vitamin C and receive 10% discount by quoting HR10 at AbundanceAndHealth.com. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, founders and clinicians that are changing the face of UK healthcare and beyond. I'm a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Before I introduce this week's guests, I'd like to remind everyone, ask all my listeners to follow us on the socials, which is at Health Tech Hour and also at UK Health Radio, just to stay on top of all of the great content that's coming up. So um, today is another show where we have two guests. So it's the second time we've had two guests. The first time went well. And based on our pre-production call, I think today's going to go well, too. Um, both of my guests are doctors who have chosen to step away um, partially from the front line in order to focus more on health tech ventures. And I think that this combination of experiences um, will be something really interesting for us to get into. So my first guest, Dr. Sarah Jarvis, has been a GP for 25 years, practicing predominantly in central London and has stepped back partially to become the clinical director of patient.info, which is the UK's most popular health information website with over 12 million users per month. Sarah is also a published author with her latest book, Diabetes for Dummies, out now. And Sarah has also blazed a trail somewhat as a uh, regular medical expert on various news channels. Um, I don't want to kind of use the phrase media medic, um, but I know that's something we're going to kind of talk about later. Uh, My second guest, Dr. Ahmed Sharabani, is still a practicing respiratory doctor and has been working on COVID wards throughout the pandemic. Uh, But he's also the founder and CEO of Locum's Nest. Locum's Nest is the pioneering digital workforce platform that helps the NHS secure staff when and where they're needed. Locum's Nest, for example, has over 30,000 doctors using the service. And I'm sure that during the pandemic, their services have been ever more in demand. And most importantly, Locum's Nest has just made it onto the list, the FT's list of the fastest growing companies in the UK. So um, first of all, Sarah, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. How's the, um, are you currently, where exactly are you? Are you currently a patient or are you currently, you know, on the frontline GPing? So the answer is I do still work as frontline GP, but I'm currently working with patient, although I should have been doing IT at lunchtime news, uh, but I turned them down for you. Oh, wow. Well, I'm honoured. Thank you very much. That makes me feel very special. Um, So Ahmed, how are you? How, um, yeah, how have you been handling the split between um, the frontline work on the respiratory wards and and locum's nest. Oh, very well, thank you, Steve. Um, no, so it's been a really nice kind of clean balance for me. So I'm um, locum's nesting Monday through Fridays, and then it's either Saturday or Sunday or 
some weekend Saturday and Sunday, I spend my times on the wards at one of a few hospitals in and around London. Well, so it's a seven day week for you. Six and a half to seven. Six and a half. Okay. Sunday afternoons off. Um, Okay. So the show is normally in three parts. So we do an origins piece about where you came from and then what you're doing right now to change the world and then what the future holds for both of you. Now with two people, we sort of have to be a bit more flexible with that format, but I'm sure we're going to make it work. So let's start with Sarah. Um, When did you become interested in making some kind of a transition from a frontline GP to working in a, a health tech, you know, venture entity company. How, how, how did that kind of come to pass? So it's a bit different as GPs. I have probably not worked fewer than 60 hours uh, for my entire career. Indeed, when I was a junior doctor, long before Ahmed was a junior doctor, I know he's an SHO now. Uh, but when I was an SHO, my average working hours uh, on one of my jobs was 105 hours a week. Uh, and um, my average sorry, working hours. Sorry, what's yep. an SHO? A senior house officer, senior so house junior officer. Doc, junior doctor, um, and my average hour, working week in my shortest work was eighty five hours a week. So as a GP, I've kind of been used to working for very long hours, having con- got, come from that arena. I've wanted mm. to be a GP since I was eight years old. It's all I'd ever wanted to do, um, uh, but I had a, a sort of academic background. I went to Cambridge and Oxford. And I wanted to combine doing general practice with doing more patient facing education. So really the general practice education side of it morphed into uh, working in the media, providing medical Mm -hmm. advice, which I've been doing for over 25 years. But during that time, I've used patient.info every day of my working life. Uh, I had never really used anything else. We'd uh, we'd played around with a few others, but over the last 20 years, I'd used it daily for myself, my own education and for my patients. And I know that that was the case for pretty much every GP that I spoke to. So about 10 years ago, I was approached by a patient. They actually have two uh, two offerings, one of which is patient.info, the other is patient access. And we mm-hmm. provide access to GPs for over 12 million people in the UK. They can um, access their medical records, they can book appointments, they can view their results, they can download the results, and so much more. That's all changed. We've done a lot more in the last two or three years. But I was approached about 10 years ago to start working with patient. Um, firstly, to work as a clinical consultant for the website. Okay. And then uh, as time went on, they wanted to develop patient access, and it's uh, really changed out of all recognition in the last five years or so. Uh, and so four years ago, I stopped being a full-time partner, which mm. I had been for 27 years by that stage. I've now been a GP for 31 years uh, and uh, joined Patient uh, Patient Platform Limited, which is patient access okay. and patient.info, uh, but still work as a locum uh, entirely in my old practice. <laughs> Good. And so back back 20, some 20 years ago, when you first started using Patient, what, what was, was it called Patient? What, what was it back then? What, why did you feel the need to use it as a GP or, or personally? So those days it was called patient.co.uk and ironically I met the founder of patient.co.uk about 10 years ago and he was saying to me you know we were talking about our shared vision for empowering patients back in the day you know you had a vision you'd go in and see the GP the GP was the one with the medical degree so you just sat there and they asked you questions and you gave them one word answers Mm -hmm. that is completely different today the problem is of course the internet and the university of twitter and so on and dr google have made everybody an expert and it, it 
has been a huge concern to me how much misinformation there is out there. So patient.info is entirely written by GPs for okay. GPs and their patients. It's all peer reviewed as well. Okay. So from that perspective, not only did I use it, but also because of the language that the authors are taught to use, which is really patient friendly language. I've taught my registrars for so my GP trainees, their doctors who are working towards becoming GPs to use it to teach them how to talk to their patients. So it's invaluable. We'll use it to give patients information. I'm a huge believer in taking, sending patients away with you. If you've got diabetes, you might spend three hours a year with a healthcare professional. The other 8,788 hours are spent on your own. So you really need to have information to take away with you, which is credible, which is really comprehensive, and which can help you to take control of your condition. And that's what patient.info is about. Free, isn't it? You just log on and you can cruise around. I was on it today looking at a few things. It's, there's no there's no premium access service, or is there, or is it just, no? Okay. Absolutely not. Same thing with patient access. One of the reasons it's so important is we've now managed to incorporate the two together. So, for instance, with patient access, we've now got something called Your Reads. So you can choose, you can tailor what information you Mm -hmm. want to get. All the editorials that come on, you can just go, you can say, right, I'm interested in COVID. I'm interested in women's health, etc. And you can use that and it will present you with information which is relevant to you on patient access. And why the founder of when it was patient.co.uk, was, was he or she a, a medical professional or how did they come up with this, this concept? Because it was pretty early. I mean, if it was 20 odd years ago, it's pretty early days for the Internet just in general, let alone anything else. It was. Well, when we met, he and his wife were both GPs and they founded the, the website together, patient.co.uk, Dr. Tim and Dr. Beverly Kenny. And interestingly, when I met them, I was talking to him about what gave him the inspiration. He said, well, he said, I don't know if you remember, I've always been really keen on patient inf- on patients being empowered, on patients having information they can take away. I don't know if you remember Doctor Magazine and this series they did for about five years of cut out and keep articles okay. on medical conditions. And these were paper articles, one page articles that you could cut out, keep and photocopy for your patient. And I wow. looked at him and burst out laughing. And he said, why are you laughing? I said, I wrote all of them. <laughs> so, so it's a small very nice. world. Very nice. Okay. Okay. And um, when, during your time as well, during your time as a full-time GP, were you, is it common that um, you were approached or, or were involved with companies? Is it a common path, I guess, that you've, you've trodden or are you somewhat the exception within the practice? It's becoming more common. It was pretty uncommon in those days. Um, I suppose it all started because I've been the trainee representative on the Royal College of GPs Council. Mm. And uh, therefore, I, I gave an interview for the Royal College of GPs. And it just happened. It was at the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre in Westminster. It just happened. ITN Lunchtime News was there. Mm-hmm. They needed somebody to give an interview. I gave an interview. A week later, I gave them another interview and they contacted me. And two weeks later, they came to me and said, we'd like to invent a job for you. Would you like to be the ITN Lunchtime News doc? Okay. Um, I was 26 or so. I'd been a GP for two years and I was absolutely terrified. Okay. Um, but basically, it's all gone from there. I've never applied for so much as a one minute interview in the media in my life. And I've done right. 850 in the last year. OK, well, we're definitely going to come back to the topic of media medic, don't we? Because I know it's like a thing now. Um, I don't know whether you take credit for inventing the term or not, but, you know. <laughs> Absolutely not. I got there completely by accident. OK, um, so what um, did, did how, um, why or, or sort of, I guess how, if at all, has, has what patient does 
patient.info or patient access. How has that kind of um, changed or adapted, um, if at all, during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic? So patient access has changed really out of all recognition. We've had a, a significant increase. We already had about 9 million users, um, but we've now got about 12 million in the last, as of the last year. Um, and we've now got, in addition to all the standard things, in addition to providing health information, in addition to being able to view your medical record, to order repeat prescriptions, to nominate a pharmacy, we've got several new services. So one, for instance, is Smart Pharmacy, uh, which has just been launched. And basically what happens there, if you're signed up to a, a Smart Pharmacy, then when you send your request into the GP, it's linked into the GP records and your notes, uh, your your patient access app says oh your GP's received your request when the GP signs off the prescription and sends it through to the pharmacy electronically you get another notification saying your GP signed off your prescription it's gone through to your pharmacy when the pharmacist receives it you get a notification your your pharmacist has received your medicine then your pharmacist has started preparing your medication then it'll tell you that the pharmacy is there it's ready to collect or it's out for delivery to you so that's a huge change because certainly as a GP we get an awful a lot of calls from patients going did you get my prescription I haven't got it yet or calling the pharmacy so that's a huge advantage for them then we've got patient access connect we know that pharmacies for instance are an invaluable and very much underused source of medical information pharmacists are very highly trained healthcare professionals they've had four years of training just in, in to become pharmacists and then they've had additional training after that so they are if you like the experts experts in medication, but they're also the experts in minor ailments. Mm -hmm. So we've now got Patient Access Connect, which will allow the practice, the receptionists, to take the patient through a consultation. Patient rings up and says, have you got any appointments? The answer, of course, is usually no, because we're all swamped, especially doing COVID vaccinations at the moment. But you can say, "Okay, have you got any of these conditions? If the condition is one of 70 different conditions that pharmacists can deal with, the receptionist in two minutes can take them through a clinically authored triage, which is written by GPs and peer reviewed so that they know it's safe. And the receptionist can say, "Okay, you haven't got any of the red flags. I can send you a referral. I can make you an appointment with a pharmacist and the pharmacist will give you an appointment today. And that's huge in terms of relieving inappropriate pressure on GPs so that GPs can deal with the more complicated stuff. In addition, of course, I was just going to say COVID vaccination passports. You can already view your medical records so you can view your immunizations and show your passport. Well, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of things that I kind of want to get onto that are more general. And one of them is this issue of passporting, because, you know, I feel like maybe I'm not quite sure what, what the difference is between just having proof that you've had a vaccination and whatever people are referring to as a passport. So we can get into that kind of separately because I, I, I think that there's that's more of a general thing. But um, and I, I, we had um, Adam Hunter from Flow on. I know we talked about this in our pre-production meeting um, and they are a digital online, a digital only pharmacy. And one of their sort of views is that the pharmacy model is evolving very much like you said um and i know that PopDoc has been we've been in touch with a number of pharmacies around the provision of of certain blood tests smartphone enabled blood tests to take pressure off of phlebotomy and off of senior nurse time within within primary care so i I, we can come on to that a bit later but i want to bring ahmed in now particularly on this point around staffing because i feel like that's right where locum's nest is so throughout the pandemic um, Ahmed, how has the demand for your services shifted based on the sort of the, the, the you know intense demand for staffing across all levels of the NHS? 
Yeah, no, Steve, uh, a fair bit. And before I get into that, I have to say, Sarah, um, thank you for patient.co.uk. It got me through a lot of my revision at med school. Good. And there you go. You know, and, and beyond that, as working as a doctor, it's the de facto place to go to give patients who are discharging, you know, advice on their conditions, be it chronic or acute. Um, wow. And actually, as a patient, I've got, you know, a number of leaflets with an arm's reach for me, but I've got a lot of things with an arm's reach working from home with so much junk. Great to hear. Me. Um, that. Yeah, so that, that's <laughs> my kind of <clears throat> um, recommendation, so to speak. But no, so lo- Locum's Nest, um, very, very different to, to patient.co.uk. I suppose we work more closely with kind of NHS leaders and hospitals rather than the patients directly. But of course, it, it cascades down very, very quickly to what the patient sees and what the healthcare professional sees. So, I mean, we, we all know the, the end in NHS is implied for national, um, but, but beyond that, if you really break it down, every NHS trust or hospital operates very much in a silo. And, and you know, you, you hear this time and time again about hospitals working independently and not sharing resource and not sharing best practice. Um, so we, we broke that down, you know, into a really, really granular way. And we found that, you know, let, let's use two hospitals, for example, Hospital A and B, uh, they each have 500 doctors if we just focus on the medics and within each of those hospitals, they have a number of gaps in their rotors. You know, we, we know the NHS needs more doctors and nurses and healthcare workers. Yeah. Um, historically, what would happen was if there was a gap in the rotor, let's say on a Sunday evening, uh, a hospital would look within its own staff. And if there wasn't anybody to cover the shift, they'd go to a recruitment agency or a locum agency. Yeah. But that, that came at a cost, right? So, you know, Four years ago, that was four billion pounds a year just to pay these locum agencies the liberty of calling up a number of doctors and, and filling a shift. So four, four billion was just the fees to the agencies, or was that including the staff cost as well? It was. It's with the staff cost, but okay. but there are plenty. You know, within that four billion, there is a large subset which is just kind of add-on costs and not what yeah. the worker gets paid at the end. Um, and you know, the, this this was a convoluted and fairly opaque process. Lots of phone calls, lots of texts, lots of bleeps. It was a you know scatterfly approach to, you know, you cast the net far and wide, and you hope you catch something, right? Rather than a really targeted kind of fishing. And I imagine and, it was it was basically a fire drill all the time. Oh, uh, you know, de- desperately trying to call all kinds of people to try and fill something, and it was all super last minute and very stressful, which may not necessarily be taken into account in an economic cost, but certainly might be an additional additional kind of indirect cost oh, oh hugely as, as i i know doctors who would have two phones uh one they would give to locum agencies and the other they'd keep for their personal lives because there was just no no mercy sarah your 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 yawn speaks volumes um, oh yeah i mean i just honestly i absolutely feel your pain ahmed as a gp trying to find locums and i think general practice is a little bit further ahead in terms of but only in the last two or three years probably because we've had more of a crisis um, than hospitals have but i have to say the number of colleagues I've got who've worked as as um, hospital doctors and who've said that you know it is just a nightmare you're on tenterhooks to know whether you'll have anyone to work with the next time you go in yeah no absolutely so so really I mean it's it's such a at face value a very simple solution technologically I mean excuse the blunt analogy but you look at the dating industry the taxi industry the travel industry it's a simple disintermediation play right you 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 have a highly regulated professional or individual let's even break it down even further and you've got you know, a hospital or an organization that, or even a GP practice that, that needs said person, it's easy tech. But but for us, it was the culture change. So at Locum's Nest, what, what we're doing now, and we've been successful with 10 NHS trusts and, and five of the 30,000 doctors on the system where we've got 10 trusts to 
really pioneer the way forwards in the NHS and say, you know, we are trust A, you are trust B, C, D, E, F, G. We will trust the checks that you do for your doctors. And we trust your NHS doctor is as competent and as safe as my NHS doctor. We're the NHS. Can I ask you just a question? You, you say that, that like as if that's some kind of major step forward. But is that is, is that quite is that quite a big step to say that trust A will will believe the qualifications as as read of the doctors of trust B? That's this not is, a given. This is no, this is a huge change, you know, a, a massive, massive change of direction in the NHS. Wow. So we, we launched this way of working about three years ago. Now it was the Royal Surrey County Hospital and Ashford and St. Peter's NHS Foundation Trust. So two trusts in and around the M25 A3 Southwest Surrey area. Um, and we got them to work together initially with the HR directors of the trust and the medical directors, you know, really pining and saying, you know, we're going to take the leap of faith and do something that nobody else has done before. That's now grown to nine, if not 10 trusts across the whole of the south of the country, okay. really. Um, but elsewhere, you're still seeing, um, you know, trust A competing with trust B. And as a result of that, doctors oh. just go to agencies. Um, Wait, so, OK, so just let me let me just take a step back just so I see what I understand. The previous situation was that how, how many trust, NHS trusts roughly are there in the UK, give or take? Dynamic, but let's say 200 for simplicity's sake. All, all 200 of them would have shortages at various times, you know, missing shifts, that type of thing, all the time, kind of constant, consistently. Nobody was working together to match the oversupply in one area with the undersupply in another area. Everyone was just kind of playing hungry hippos with, you know, agencies to just try and, you know, get as many people as they could on a completely ongoing, permanent basis. Is that in the most respectful way, it was like a perpetual battle between organisations. Right. Uh, you know, each each NHS hospital had its own wall and had its own moat to, wow. to stop movement. Um, but this is changing. You know, Sarah, you might have seen similar things in primary care with across the GP practices with the formation of federations and primary care networks. But there is a massive change at the moment, um, which is great because the tech is ready. Locum's Nest is there. It's ready to be deployed across the country. Um, but we're seeing the culture change between the directors, the CEOs of the NHS saying, we want to work together. And now there are, you know, honestly, dozens of collaborative banks, collaborative groups working together, sprouting across the UK, which is which is great. So when you That's first really kind of came up... Oh, I was just going to say, Steve, it's, it's a really important point Ahmed makes when you said, you know, do you mean people couldn't take for granted that if you could work in one area, you could work in another? The number of hoops that you have to jump through as a GP and indeed as a, as a hospital doctor um, to work as a locum or, or as a GP, you know, permanently, any, any doctor to work in the NHS, the number of hoops you have to jump through, the number of forms that need to be submitted, all of that. So every time somebody was working in a different area, and we now have a, a, an area in my, in my area, we have a, a locum agency called Lantern, um, which does for general practice, doesn't doesn't charge. So I think it's very much like the, the same sort of model, perhaps, as Hornet's Nest, but it's really unusual. And there the GPs upload their information so that it's it's all there. You don't have to jump through all these steps every time. I mean, when I this is just music to my ears hearing what Ahmed is saying, because it just makes such sense. And yet it has never happened. As I say, we've, we're a little bit further ahead in general practice because general practices are so small compared to hospitals, perhaps. And we've had the locum problems for much longer. Um, but it is it is extraordinary to think that in a in a you know, in a society as sophisticated as ours, all that information was not just held in one place and you couldn't move between. 
Yeah, and I think it's, you know, for people that aren't that familiar with the ins and outs of how the NHS works, it's sort of, like you say, all 200 trusts were just siloed effectively and not looking to try and, it's not one organisation. I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest things when we at PopDoc started to to collaborate and, and integrate with the NHS is that, you know, we, we very quickly realised my background is not necess- not in healthcare, but is in commercial partnerships. And um, it's not the same ball game. I mean, that, that, that it really, really isn't. It's not one organisation. It's extremely distributed. Um, and so going back to what you were saying before, um, Ahmed, why... If you can try, I'd be really interested to see if you can try and kind of communicate or relate why staffing, why is it a problem to to patients as a group if you have either missed shifts or you have health trusts spending, over-investing in, um, you know, locum agencies or, you know, you have admin staff spending all their time filling these things. How does that translate down to a level of care on a patient level? Yeah, no, of course. And, you know, one thing I will say is that the care the NHS provides is, is world class. And, you know, colleagues yeah, sure. and friends of me know I'm a big advocate for this, despite the negative PR internationally and locally on some occasion. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, if there is a gap in the rotor and the hospital can't find a doctor to plug the, to plug the gap in the shift, then you as a junior doctor, I personally would end up seeing 80 patients instead of 40, for example. And that is not uncommon. Yes, with new technology, new ways of working, it's decreasing in terms of how frequently that happens. But, you know, it's it becomes twice, it, it's not even twice as hard. It, it's significantly more difficult seeing 80 patients compared to 40 as one junior doctor on call. Your bleep is going off 24-7. Uh, you have to run to the phone between patients. You may have two or three different emergency calls for you to run around to, two ends of the hospital and some hospitals are designed, you know, in ways that I'm convinced the designer was trying to build a maze before they realized they were building a hospital. But, um, it was, so it's, it's, you know, at, at a very, very granular level, that's what the doctor feels. They, they have to deal with twice as many patients and the patients end up not seeing, not getting as much kind of doctor time as needed. It is always safe. It is never unsafe. I've never been in a situation where I thought, you know, uh, this is I, I feel putting like I'm putting myself and others in danger here it hasn't happened but you know over time and with the pandemic it, it gets tiring and with the pandemic you know sick leave is increasing self-isolation incidences are increasing uh, it, the NHS has to work smarter and it, it's so refreshing that they are because sharing and collaborating is the only way that you know we're going to get through this we, we can't all of a sudden get 10 or 20,000 new doctors in the UK overnight right but, it's impossible. I mean, uh, yeah. Look, I mean, when you explain it like that, it, it is like any other. If you t- if you take out the healthcare concept, then it's it's really matching up demand and supply via a, a digital platform. Um, you know, yes, it gets more complicated because of the highly regulated nature and, and quite rightly so of what you're you're doing. But you you know, you're doing what's been done in in many 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 other industries. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I I don't know what analogy to give here, but I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the NHS, if I was to liken it to, to British Airways, which is quite topical for, for personal reason, it's okay. like if you're a pilot in, you know, flying for BA, you flew 777s from Gatwick and you had a week off and then, you know, there was a 777 flying from Heathrow and then Heathrow said, no, sorry, you can't fly the 777 British Airways aircraft from Heathrow because you have to go through a Sarah Lugan. You have to re- kind of requalify almost. It's it's a mountain of paperwork and treacle you have to walk through just to be given the access of providing your service there. It's, it's ludicrous. That you might have it's been doing, you know, 50 miles down the road. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. 10 miles down the road. Yeah. 
And it's, it's what really interesting because, you know, when you listen to a comedian, I often find that the best comedians are the ones who look at everyday life and you think, oh, my God, why didn't I think of that? That's so funny. And, you know, Ahmed is absolutely right. It's ludicrous that we have never had this. And it's just joy to hear that it's happening now because it makes such perfect sense. And, you know, I'm quite sure that a lot of people looking at Locum's Nest and thinking, kicking themselves, thinking, ah, oh, why didn't I think of this? But they didn't. Is it? Um, so let's go back to just you, you kind of personally. Um, when did you start to when did you realize and how did you kind of make the decision that you would move from coming up with this idea from Lo, for Locum's Nest into actually, you know, going for it, which would involve stepping back slightly from the career that you presumably had invested quite a lot of your life in building to that point? Yeah, no, Steve. So I, it was pretty straightforward. Upbringing. I grew up in, in a beautiful country called Oman uh, in the Gulf of Arabia, mm-hmm. moved up to Sheffield for med school, moved down to London and then Surrey for my foundation training as a doctor um, and then Locum's Nest. But the, the pivotal point was in our first year as, as doctoring, it was uh, the Locum's other co-founder, Nick, and I were good friends at the time, still are, still work very, very closely. And we thought, you know, we'd had a lot of ideas together but one of them was this one and it was you know we we keep end up working shifts that are understaffed and we're always asked it's almost like clockwork every friday to pick up a shift on sunday um okay. and there has to be a better way so we we worked on this idea uh we both took a coding course to see if we okay code tech cool spent some money on it um and realized that, you know the best thing it taught us was there wasn't you know a chance in hell that we could do this ourselves so you know very quickly it was <laughs> um you, let's you've get learned, some professionals in yeah you've learned that you can't I think the best thing I developed was a random dice generator which is useful for kind of games like Monopoly but it's far from a NHS savvy application um mm. so you know after that we we pulled together lots of ideas we spoke to the trust we worked at so the Royal Surrey and, and George's at the time um and we got the approval and got the blu- built the blueprints, really built it with the NHS. It was almost cool. like fortnightly focus groups of, you know, what is oh, the wow. best solution to build this? Then, you know, that my HR director at the time, Nikki Hill, lovely ladies now at Kingston, I think, um, asked her, you know, if we were to build this, would you, would you launch it at your trust, please? It's totally new and novel and no one else has done it before. Mm. Initially, I think she said no, but then I said, I, I think it'll save you half a million pounds a year. Then that quickly turned to a yes. And, <laughs> and actually, you know, it's a, did it? it did. It saved the trust two and a half million pounds in agency costs in year one. And, you know, that's Nick, insane. We, we couldn't be happier. It was amazing first year. Wow. And um, um, did you did you have to go through? Because um, obviously with, with any marketplace, the marketplace is really limited by the, the volume of inventory available really yes. like the, the yeah. value of that marketplace is inherently linked to what's actually on there so how, how did you kind of go about ensuring that there would be sufficient staff on there in order to fill those vacancies yeah I mean Sarah will also tell you doctors it's it's a small tightly knit community despite there being so many of us um you know I'm convinced there's about two degrees of separation from any doctor in this country based on where they've worked we, we rotate in our training years across so many hospitals and you've got med school and, and everything but when we launched we did it at a, in a controlled way because you're dealing with people's lives at the end of the day right staffing yeah. levels equals patient care yeah um so we launched in one small department which is when I was working on the ENT surgery department at the Royal Surrey in 2016 there were about two or three shifts a week that were vacant we had about mm-hmm. 10 10 doctors on the app back then um but those us the 10 of us uh, then you know 
reached out to our colleagues and quickly there was about 500 doctors for 10 wow. shifts a week. Um, and then, you know, we proved it worked in ENT, then launched in general medicine, then, you know, A&E, then general surgery. And, you know, four-ish years later, we're now 30,000 doctors and it's the kind of marketplace for all community of medics to book into shifts, which is, which is and wonderful. Can, can, any, can any medic just sign up themselves or do you have to onboard the trust first? How, how, does, it, how does it work? Yeah, so there's two streams, right? So the supply and demand. So trusts are coming on board, and um, I think we'll have around 50 or 60 NHS trusts on board by the end of the year, which is which That's is great. Awesome. Um, but for doctors, and it's we're live for all healthcare workers now. But looking okay. at doctors, uh, we link with the GMC database, the General Medical Council. And if you're a doctor with a full name and a GMC number that's valid, we have a live integration with them and you download the app and you upload your, your digital passport, which will, it, we might link this with vaccine passports soon. But okay. And then you, you have access to the app and you can see shifts at, across all of our trusts and um, you apply to where you want to work directly for the NHS, not, not, not through an agency. Oh, that's awesome. And then presumably this might be getting a little bit sensitive because I know that we've, we've certainly had our experiences with, with agencies and more on nurses and phlebotomist side of things um, for kind of internal studies and testing and things like that. And, um, you know, there's, there's a big delta between what a private company pays to an agency and what the person working for the agency actually gets. Do you sort of narrow that margin or is it a different model in the NHS? Totally different model. If you're a doctor, or a nurse, a pharmacist, a physiotherapist, um, using locums nest for your shifts, you get every penny that you apply to. Um, uh-huh. You know, locums nest. If we're to go a step above, we're a software as a service. The, it's like a subscription that the NHS right. organisations pay, and really they only start paying us once we've proven to them. We'll basically save them ten to twenty times what the cost for locums nest is. So, okay. um, but no, do, healthcare worker cool. gets every penny they earn, which is the most important thing. Okay, excellent. So um, now let's turn to this topic of media medics, because I love the term, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I kind of feel like I know we spoke about this before, Sarah, and you, you kind of had some views about it as to it now being whether or not being a media medic is in, of its, in and of itself a career or not. No, categorically not. So I I have been, as I say, a GP for 31 years. Um, The reason that I feel able to continue to provide advice is because I know exactly what it's like. So if somebody says to me, you know, what a patient's going through at the moment, I can think back, cast my mind back to a patient um, or a lot of patients. Uh, And I think that the other thing to bear in mind is an awful lot of people wanted to get into to television or whatever because it's glamorous uh, whereas actually it's not glamorous it's not terribly well it's not well paid at all in fact often it's not paid at all um, yeah. certainly for the vast majority of people uh, none of us are Chris Evans's and none of us are I don't know no. whoever's um, but uh, it's it's one of those things that I got into and kind of stayed in because apparently I'm quite good at it but more importantly because I am absolutely passionate about improving patients access to reliable information and letting the facts get in the way of a good headline which is the way I normally describe it Um, the last year has been unprecedented I normally do I don't know maybe for the last 20 years or so I, I would do between you know five and eight interviews a week in the media of which 
three would be national and three would be what I describe as my public service duty, which is, uh, you know, talking to small regional radio stations and things about um, about important issues, because it's it's really important to get the messages out there. Um, in the last year, as I say, it's it's just been crazy. I mean, for the first few months of COVID, I was doing, I don't know, 10 10 national interviews, 12 national interviews a week. Um, I'm now doing on average last month, I did, um, I think, about 80 interviews. Um, But they're still really important messages. And sometimes, you know, you have to really believe it. And I think the way that you really believe it, the reason you really believe it is because you're doing it every day and you see what these conditions mean to your patients and you see how much difference it makes to your patients because because they've been affected by them. So, you know, I don't think that you can go and when I've seen doctors who haven't even qualified or medical students saying oh well you know I want to I want to go into media medicine um and we do see as if it's like a thing it's incredible to me yeah I know I know I mean you know you're not there because you've got an exam it's like your driving test that's like saying you know I want to go out and drive an HGV because I passed my driving test on a mini you know on a a mini automatic yesterday it's a complete nonsense I think you just have to have the experience you have to know what it's been like um certainly in the last year there's been so much more stuff about we've had some adverse publicity towards gps so you know it's really important that you know the pressures that they're under you've seen a lot of patients who felt who felt that they haven't been perhaps dealt with properly or that they've had delays to their treatment so yep. you need to know what patients are going through it's just so desperately important is it is there an element where that the the you know media companies themselves need to be slightly more responsible about who they try and sort of recruit or is it not really their fault and it's more sort of an Instagram type culture that's driving this and there's a huge pressure from the Instagram as I you know I have Twitter because I have to have Twitter Mm -hmm. um but I don't you know my Facebook is for for me and my family and I don't have Instagram and I have no idea what TikTok is um so I (laughs) you know I I don't do these things because I want to get my name out there but I recognize how many people are concerned I mean going back to patient access you know in the first um three months on patient access we developed very quickly every year we develop a flu eligibility checker this year people were really worried about flu vaccination so flu vaccine eligibility rather than are you eligible to catch flu Um, but a flu eligible for that right (laughs) Um, but we had you know we had 530 people go through it because they were so confused about the new regulations of course they were they've they've expanded and that's great but so many people weren't aware. And that really gives an idea with our coronavirus symptom checker on patient access. We have 1.25 million people who access the tool because the NHS yeah. tool kept crashing because so many people were using it. Yeah, right. So, you know, it's it's so important that you recognise what's a priority to patients. Likewise, with, you know, with patient access, slightly, um, slightly aside from the media medicine side, but we have something called proxy access or family connect, where patients, who are people who are looking after a loved one and who can't get appointments for them they can't get the repeat prescriptions they can't view their medical records or whatever you can do that on their behalf with their permission but that has to be done with the right consents and it's only because I've been a GP that I was able to go into patient access go on to patient.info and say okay this is what people really need yeah because you see it from the from the ground up Ahmed what's your view on this whole thing yeah, no, so Sarah, I'm I'm not going to take the the mini analogy the wrong way as a recent mini owner, but no, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not personal. wrong with the mini. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a mini Cooper. Uh, but no, so I I'm not a I'm not I don't classify myself as a media doctor in any way. But it, I am. What concerns me here is the kind of the level of misinformation that that's being spread at so many levels. And actually, there's this kind of 
reverse kind of popularity matrix where the most junior doctors or to be doctors, as Sarah alluded to, you know, these final year medical students, if not earlier, tend to have the largest following because of the generation that is looking at yeah. the, you know, down these avenues for medical information. So, you know, medical advice through through Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, tends to be followed by the most junior people and not those that have had experience. And, and that is of concern. So, you know, whilst I'm not a media doctor by by any means, I probably do one interview a year. Um, okay. Maybe two this year, including I this one. I bet you it's a good one, though. I yeah, bet you yeah, absolutely no, nail it. I, I, I try. Um, but no, so the thing I just like to kind of voice here is that, you know, misinformation is, is huge now, not just through kind of medical symptoms and diseases, but the vaccine as well. So, right. you know, seeing this firsthand with medical colleagues and people you meet or speak to in day-to-day life, there is so much correcting you need to do. And the correcting I find myself doing is is based on science and experience, albeit only six or seven what, years, but that's better than six or seven days after medical school. So what kind of are the common things that you find yourself correcting about the vaccine? I, either of you. <laughs> Where do I start? Sarah, do you, do you know, I mean, I, you go first, because my mind's very, very limited, but a, a very, very big one, not just in the UK, but abroad about kind of AstraZeneca is, is the most concerning thing I've, I've seen. So I, interestingly, I covered, I covered AstraZeneca on, um, on Radio 2 yesterday, because, of okay. course, if you remember, I don't know if you know that Germany has just come out and basically backtracked. So the, the German regulatory body has effectively come out and said, um, ah, yes, well, we, we may have been a tad on the hasty side about the AstraZeneca vaccine. And of course, they are in the position where they have 1.4 million vaccines over there, of which 80 percent have not yet been used. And yet they haven't even vaccinated everybody in their care homes. And we are starting to invite the last cohort in the 50 to 60 year age group in the UK. We vaccinated nearly 40 percent of our adult population. So with the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, there was this uh, misinformation which came out from a national German newspaper uh, where they said that it was only 8 percent effective in over 65. The only place that anybody can see that that complete twaddle came from medical term twaddle, obviously. Yeah, no, very technical. Um, the, only, <laughs> the only place that, that that came from was that there were actually only 8 percent of people in the trial who yeah, were in exactly. the 55 well, it was um, it wasn't it it wasn't it macron that kind of kicked off this whole thing by so, but he yeah. got sort of he got sort of pinned on why france wasn't vaccinating anybody <laughs> he kind of Sort well, of, of course, that was entirely political because uh, because the French had expected to produce the vaccine, which was going to be well beating, and they ended up not getting a vaccine at all. They they are using the AstraZeneca, the Pfizer, and the Moderna vaccines, which are the three which are licensed. Um, but they've only vaccinated about I think three percent of their population, so they are way 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 behind on this. Um, but in terms of the UK, it's very interesting to see how, as we've had so much success and so many positive stories, the number of people who are prepared to be vaccinated has increased significantly. And the great news is that ONS just produced data saying that actually 95% of people uh, are in their 20s and 97% of the whole population now say that they, they would not definitely or probably refuse a vaccine if it was given. And I think that's extraordinary, given that we've come from about 75% to 95% in just two months. We've seen, for instance, the AstraZeneca, the, one of the reasons that they've, they've rescinded. Um, Austria has already changed its tune. Uh, Germany is now looking to change its, change its advice. And the reason that they've changed their advice, is we've just had data which has come out from Scotland last week and from England this week, saying that actually in terms of your likelihood of hospital admissions, it is reduced by about 
95% by the Pfizer vaccine, about 94% by the AstraZeneca vaccine from a single vaccine. The World Health Organization has now come out and said that because you appear to get a better immune response when you've had a longer gap between the two vaccines, they are now recommending with the AstraZeneca vaccine that it should be given between six and 12 weeks apart rather than the four weeks apart, which is on the license. But I think the biggest one that I've had, firstly, it's going to affect your fertility. Well, extraordinarily, I mean, there have been throughout history, there have been stories about vaccines that affect their fertility. And actually, if you look back, it all came down to a single trial in Africa about 20, 25 years ago, where it was actually a trial of a contraceptive where one of the additives used was similar to tetanus toxoid, which, of course, is what's used in tetanus vaccine. Um, And because it was a contraceptive trial, they jumped from there to it, it stops you getting pregnant to it completely stops you getting pregnant ever. And even the contraceptive trial wasn't looking at that. So that is how literally these things can happen. Likewise, with respect to the length of time it's taken to develop, and this is probably the second biggest question that I get, how can it must have been rushed? No, if you look at the length of time it takes to develop a vaccine, it's not about looking for long-term side effects because they often don't get to the trials for six or seven years. Firstly, they need the genetic fingerprint of the virus. Well, China made that available to the entire world in mid-January last year. Then once they've got that, then they need to get money to proceed. Well, every government in the world was throwing money at them, absolutely. So they had the money already. Then they need the 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 way to do it the scientists need to work out how to get the vaccine into people and what how to develop it well we've had 10 15 years of developing vaccines for SARS for MERS for um Oh, all the standard ones as well for Ebola. Um, And so they were able to harness all of that. Then you need to have regulatory approval. Well, the regulators basically stopped everything and said they were kind of highly incentivized to kind of look at this thing fairly quickly. Yep. Then you need enough people to get into the trials and that will often delay it for another year while they recruit yep. people. Well, we had yep. two, 320,000 people in the UK alone who were yep. signed up to the vaccine trials, including me. I got the placebo as it happened, but my okay. husband got the real thing. Hurrah. Okay. <laughs> um, then you need to have a trial, which often takes years because you need enough people to get the virus you so you enough can tell exposure. when the vaccine helps. This took that took weeks. And then you need the regulators to look at the data. Well, they but they'd looked at the data all the way through. So all they were waiting for was the results. That's why it's happened in a year, not for any other reason. And what, um, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I just wanted to, to pick up on one point. You said, Sarah, that, that you know, now the, the studies are showing that the, the vaccines are most uh, the efficacy levels are the highest when the doses are split kind of six, 12 weeks apart. You know, I, I remember you know, when I got, I got my vaccine, I don't know when it was, I think it was late, late January was, was dose one. And there was a lot of noise about, from medical professionals and the general public, that this isn't acceptable. You can't delay it by three months. You know, how can the British government take this leap of faith without without the science? But it was, you know, this isn't the first vaccine that the world has introduced to anybody, right? You know, there are other vaccines which have proven that you split the doses three months, if not longer, to let the body induce a reaction initially and give it time to build that reaction level. And then you give it a a booster. And that booster is the kind of the long-term cementing of your immunity. So I'm so happy and, and, you know, lesser relieved, but more proud that the government has taken this approach. And now the right call. Yeah, and the world will do it. Of course, 
agree with everything you've said, Ahmed, that, except that on this situation, it wasn't the government, it was the JCVI and the MHRA who made the recommendation. I think that's, that's where everybody kind of assumes everything's government. Yes, they agree to go with it, but that was the recommendation from the JCVI. And one of the, the great privileges I have from being, stop me, a media medic... Oh, media medic. Oh, here we go. Yeah, you is see, that, look, you do like it. You do like the term. Well, no, no. The point is that actually, the the um, the uh, deputy chief medical officer. We have weekly calls with the deputy chief medical officer, a group of about ten or ten or twelve of us, um, so that we can have all the information and we can avoid the misinformation. Now, that does not stop me being critical. Believe believe you me when yeah. I need to be. But actually, it's a really good opportunity. So when the vaccine decisions were made, um, the day that the decision came out, we had a call with the um, the head of the JCVI, the chief executive of the MHRA, uh, the chief, chief medical officer, the chief scientific advisor. They sat us all down and said, OK, tear us to shreds. You go for it. What are people going to be asking you? And but of course, that, all of these sorry, questions right. came up. So and with that, just focusing on that one specific decision, not not all of the rest of them, but the one specific decision to to. Um, uh, expand if you like the duration between dose one and dose two um, and the the vaccine committee and the MRHA you said made that decision H- how because at, the, at that time there wasn't a huge amount of um, longitudinal evidence about that or, or was there I mean how much of a how much was a pun based on you know good guesswork versus actual hard evidence to make that decision was there available at that time yeah, so it turned out to a be a really right good call. question and the answer is it was a very informed guess so it was less, it was a more informed guess on the basis of the AstraZeneca one. Ahmed made a fantastic point about the fact that they were able to use modelling from other vaccines and consistently other vaccines have shown that if you expand the dose between the two of them, you get better response, you get a heightened immune response from the second dose. But we are still learning about these things. The problem we had was that we were at the stage where um, 50% of all the people admitted to hospital in the UK during the entire pandemic went in in December and January. 30% of all the people who died, died in January alone this year. The case rates were absolutely through the roof. People were dying in their droves. And the rationale was, if we can give twice as many people 75% protection compared to half as many people, 90% protection, we will save lives. And interestingly, the Germans have now come out specifically and said that actually by delaying the doses, they've done the modelling based on what we've seen in the UK and have said, if we delayed the dose, we could save between 10 and 15,000 lives. So the answer has got to be fine. You give them the two doses four weeks apart. Who are you going to knock off the bottom of the list then? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And also it there's an element to this where I fit. Well, I mean, this obviously I'm not a doctor, so this is not meant to be a medical opinion, but more in terms of the almost like the, the feeling or the momentum that the, the UK's drive has provided. It's sort of I wonder how much the the, the, the view, you know, on the, on the news shows in the morning, they have the you know vaccination ticker and, you know, everyone's talking about when are you up? When are you up? When are you up? You know, it's, it's almost like a thing now. Whereas if you look at the rates in, in France and in Germany, it's, it's so painfully slow that it almost in the public consciousness might not actually be happening. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. we're repeatedly hearing now 
um, a lot of people over in Europe are very angry about what the governments over there did um, in respect of AstraZeneca. And we are repeatedly hearing, indeed, we had several people, in fact, they were in it, the lines were inundated on Radio 2 um, on Monday with people ringing in and saying, we are really angry because we want this vaccine. We've said we're prepared to sign to say, I'm prepared to take the risk that it might not be as effective. This was never anything to do with safety. That's That's the other thing. But when you have Angela Merkel being effectively asked live on air, we think you should have the AstraZeneca vaccine live on air to prove that it's safe, because (laughs) that's what people have taken away when there was never any question of safety. Um, And she demurs. It's not surprising people are dying. Can I I ask you, this this has taken things out of the UK slightly back back home to where where kind of family lives in Oman. There's this common misconception that AstraZeneca is safer than Pfizer because the technology it's built on is more kind of yeah. antique or, or well-tested. I, of course, disagree with that entirely. Yeah. I, I was jabbed with Pfizer just by chance. It's what the hospital had on the day. But, you know, what, what's, what's the stance that you've had on this and the conversations you've had on safety so- of water? It's a really good question. Interestingly, I've had almost exactly the same number of patients who've said to me, oh, I want the Pfizer one um, because it, it's more effective. And I don't want the AstraZeneca. And I've said, I want the AstraZeneca one because the other one's more experimental. Well, actually, yes. any vaccine is experimental in as much as, you know, if it's the first time it's been produced for a condition. But they're all based on the same kind of technology. All the vaccines are based on the spike protein. It's just a different way of delivering them. So the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are both mRNA vaccines. Now, those vaccines have been extensively investigated in other areas for other vaccines, but it's just happened that we haven't needed them. So they're extensively investigated for SARS, for MERS, but those never became pandemics, so they were never needed. And actually, the um, mRNA vaccines are already being licensed for so-called designer drugs for people who've got, say, skin cancer. So, and approved highly efficacious in them. There is absolutely this. uh, This is, of course, it goes to one of the other things people can think of, you know, mRNA, DNA, or genetic modifying. It's modifying my genes. And, you know, this is all to do with... Yeah, well, precisely. And my response to that is, if you want, you know, if you think something you take into your body is going to genetically modify you, when was the last time you ate cheese? Because half the cheese that's produced in the US and a large proportion of the cheese that's eaten in the UK is made using genetically modified viruses. So um, just before we go, we've got a few minutes. So I'd like one each of you just to tell me what you think is the, the one or two things. And it can be, you know, related to your own businesses or it can be something different. What changes do you think have happened in the last 12 months within health tech, within healthcare that are here to stay um, and which may, you know, sort of move, move away? So, Ahmed, why don't you, you, you go first? Yeah, no, so, so one that we've kind of alluded to already, it's this whole collaborative working and breaking down the silos, uh, kind of at the walls between NHS organisations in the hospital world and, and the GP world. And, you know, I, I think this is a movement that, that will continue. And in months, if not years, we will see a world where if you're an NHS doctor, nurse, pharmacist, physiotherapist, whoever you might be, and you're needed at a different organisation, you will have access to work there and that will be respected using a digital passport, which is kind of your compliance and kind of your credentials. It'll be centralized. And that's what we want. That will save the NHS billions of pounds, but more importantly, it'll increase staffing levels. So right doctor, nurse, et cetera, could be at the right place at the right time. 
that's the workforce side of things. Um, you know, and the other the other point I guess I want to make is, you know, we're, we're used to Zoom and Teams and, you know, outpatient digital remote consultations. My personal take on this is they will continue to a degree for those that find them more convenient. But by no means do I believe that the face-to-face GP or healthcare worker interaction with human will go away. I, I think that will decrease a tiny bit, negligible almost. Okay. And are you... Um... Are you working, are you, are you leading the forefront of the development of this digital passport or are you sort of, because that would benefit you guys quite a bit, I imagine. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely, Steve. So, um, you know, the 30,000 healthcare workers in, in the country are now using the Locums Nest digital passport. There oh, okay. Are, there are 100,000 doctors in the UK, give or take, you know, we're, we're on track. Of You're cracking the, through them. The de facto NHS digital passport will hopefully be pushed through by, by Locums Nest, you know, it's, okay. the movement's already there. Cool. Sarah, what about you? Well, I'm going to build on what Ahmed has said, not so much about the, the locums and the doctors, but about the patients and the way that healthcare services have been delivered. So if you look at patient access, as I said, we already had um, a service which allowed people to order and manage their repeat medications, access their medical records, view their test results, share and download their re- records, message their GP, um, access NHS referral services, nominate the pharmacy um, and tailor their information. But what we've now got, I think, increasingly as a digital front door. So the things that we've developed on patient access are to allow patients to get to the right service at the right time and recognize that while there are always going to be times when it's appropriate to see a clinician face-to-face, there are many situations where actually it's not better. In fact, it's much less convenient and it doesn't offer any advantages. So, for instance, we can now, you know, a lot of practices are now offering telephone appointment bookings, video consultation bookings. Well, you can do those straight from the patient access app and you can actually just video you can have a video consultation straight from your app, straight into your records with your GP sitting there with your records open. And he can open up the video consultation from the EMIS web, which is the NHS consulting uh, software that they use. So I think a lot of that is going to stay. And I think a lot of, for instance, online consultations, we've got a product called Online Consult, which about six million patients use to send information to their GP. Now, for instance, if you've got a problem and you don't know whether it needs to see a GP or not, in the past, you'd ring up, you'd make an appointment, you'd have a call back from the GP, you'd you'd go in and you'd take a half day off work and go and see the GP and they would tell you to go and see the pharmacist because actually there wasn't anything they could prescribe and we're not allowed to prescribe paracetamol anyway. Now, you can send the form in in your pyjamas at three o'clock in the morning and you know that the information that you've provided in your own time, really useful for people who don't have English as a first language, language so you know they don't have to have an English speaker who goes along with them they can translate it for them you can send it in and you know that the GP will receive it and when we uh, with online consult of all the forms that are sent in only about one in four needs a face-to-face consultation and that's even after 40% of people haven't got as far as needing to submit a form because they've had all the information they need from patient.info. That's fantastic. Well, look, we've got to wrap up now. But Ahmed, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a brilliant. And yeah, thank you very much for everyone for listening. And, you know, we'll be publishing next week's show in due course. But thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Great pleasure. Thanks Thanks very much. Lovely to meet you. Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands up in the